Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Our focus today is going to be looking at the fact that Christ, Jesus Christ, is superior to angels. It's there in Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 14 and finish chapter 1 today. So let's open in prayer. Father, we come humbly to you, dependent upon you, to give us illumination, to give us understanding your truth, how it applies to our lives. Lord, help us not to be cynical, but Lord, to humbly go through this life, being a a witness and a testimony that you are God and you are God alone. So we thank you for what you're going to do in our hearts. We're going to thank you that you're going to change us today before even we leave this place, that we will be different for all eternity. One step, one moment at a time, because we are your workmanship and you will finish that work. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 1. It's interesting, as we came to this book, it focused on, as, as I showed you, it was written by a Hebrew, a Greek-speaking Hebrew, a, a Hellenist, because he records and writes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. And it was written by this Greek-speaking Jew, this Hellenist, to a group of Jewish people. Now, in that group, it, it contained Jewish believers and Jewish unbelievers. Just as every congregation meets, there are those that are believers and those who are not believers. Those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit testifies with their heart that they're children of God. But there are those that are deceiving themselves. They're trusting in everything but God. And that's why, again, that they're trusting in their work, trusting in their traditions, trusting in angels we're going to see and worshiping angels. And that's why this text is so important because while the people here, the bulk of the people, are not Jewish, but oftentimes they're trusting in other things, trusting in what they've known or what their grandparents have done or trusting in the fact that they've tithed or they've said a sinner's prayer. The only thing that we can ever trust in for our salvation is Jesus Christ, his work upon the cross, what he's done, and that his word is true and he is coming again. Well, as we came to this book, we saw that Jesus is superior to everything and everyone. In fact, the Holy Spirit now teaches us that Jesus is superior to angels. And that may be hard for some people to understand, but they worshiped angels. And we'll talk about that as we go through this book. And when we stop and look and think about man, man was, again, that crown of God's creation. This amazing creation, if you stop and think about it. Man, that crown is is higher than the plants. He's higher than the animals. He's more complex in in every way. Yet, with man being the crown of God's creation, there are created beings 
even higher than man. They're called angels. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we do see him who is made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of his suffering of the death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus Christ, fully God, he is deity, he is God, added this humanity. He's fully God and fully man, but we learn from Philippians he laid aside this supernatural power, his deity. And we see that the Holy Spirit is the one that is moving through him. Now, he came and, and identified with sinful man, and that's important to understand. He lived a perfect life, a life that put, again, God first preeminent in his life. This is the, the example that we're to follow in and learn from that's so important. Now, these angels, they too were created in a creature-like holiness. When Jesus was born, he was born of a virgin. He was without sin. He had no inherited sin. So when these angels were created, they were only created in like holiness, and they were given a free will, just as Jesus was given this free will. Now, in this world, from the very beginning, when we start talking about angels, there's two types of angels today. There's the holy angels and the unholy, or the, again, the, the fallen angels or the unholy angels who have followed after Lucifer, Satan, who has taken a, a third of the angels and have followed him in rebellion against God. Now, speaking about these holy angels, not only are they holy, they're powerful and wise. They are not all powerful. They are not, again, all wise. But they have a power that's stronger than a human being. And they are wise being that they are without sin. You and I created that image and likeness of God are marred. So therefore our wisdom oftentimes is the wisdom of man. Now, these angels, they don't have infirmities like man. They are specially created beings. They're made by God before man was ever made or created and placed in that garden. They were a higher order than man, at least that of the fallen man. Now, the Old Testament gives us 108 direct references to angels. When you get to the New Testament, there's 165 direct references. And they render special worship and service to God. They have a purpose that's been given to them. And the holy angels do that very thing. But the unholy, the fallen, they do what's right in their own eyes or the right in the Satan's eyes. They're the blind following the blind. And we see that even in this life, people follow in that same pattern. Now, what are these angels and, and what do they do? Well, first of all, these angels, they're spirit beings. They do not have flesh and blood. Angels are not subject to death, so they, they live eternally. They'll be eternally holy, confirmed in that holiness, or again, fallen, confirmed in their 
sinful rebelliousness to God. Scripture nowhere indicates that they die or can be annihilated. But as I mentioned earlier, in Revelation 12.4, a, a third of them fell. And this is what we call the fallen angels. Now, angels may appear in several different forms. Notice with me in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, do not neglect showing hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without even knowing it. Angels, because they do not have a body, have to manifest themselves in a body. We often talk about a person being demon-possessed. They manifest themselves, these fallen angels, in a person who's opened that door to demonic opportunities. Now, these good angels, they manifest themselves, and we don't fully understand that, too. But they appear as men, but they're not men. They do not have bodies, but they appear to have bodies. And notice again that... that we could be entertaining them and not even be uh, aware of it. I've known many people in the past have have wondered, has it been an angel that I've entertained? They recognize that divine appointment, how all those pieces come together, and supernaturally, the angel is gone. I remember in the instance of this church, we were doing a a worship and prayer night, and we were praying. We were in a semi-circle. And, and someone came in to the church. Now, we're, we're focused, we're looking ahead, but you can kind of tell someone is, is coming in. Not just the footsteps, there's that feeling that we're behind us. And as we would sing and worship the Lord, this, this person, whoever he was, was behind us, was singing like in three-part harmony, something that, that I couldn't do and others couldn't do. And he was singing high and he was singing low and it, was, it sounded as if there was a choir behind us. And when we closed that evening, we turned around and looked. That person was gone. But every one of us that were there that night were edified and built up and encouraged and wondered who was this? Was this a person? Was it an angel? And we know that the angels... Worship God. So it's very possible that any one of us, again, here's the warning, do not neglect to show hospitality to to strangers because you don't know whether they're an angel or something. See, these angels are active in our lives. They're ministering spirits. They're ministering to those that are believers in Christ. They're those even who are not believers that God sends them to protect them because there's a time they're going to become a believer. Then at Jesus' resurrection, in Matthew 28, verse 3 and 4, we see then it mentions of an angel and his appearance was like that of lightning. His clothing was white like snow and the guards shook from fear of him and and they became like dead. We see this manifestation. We know it's an angel as you go back and you read the, the context, the cross verses. And this angel appeared dazzling and brilliant in glory. He's, he's there at the tomb, speaking to the women, revealing that Jesus is resurrected. Now, these angels are highly intelligent. 
They have emotions. They, they rejoice. For example, when a, a sinner is saved, they're, they're rejoicing. And Luke 15.10 describes that. Angels can speak to men. It's recorded many places in the Scripture. Angels in heaven do not again marry, or do they procreate? They don't have babies. They don't have offspring is what it's saying in, in heaven. In Galatians 1.8, notice what it says. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what is preached to you, he is to be a curse, a curse to the, the lowest hell, anathema. Notice these angels can preach. They can proclaim. They bring another gospel and false, again, cults follow after perhaps these fallen angels. We give the illusion that, that people could be deceived. It's, it's, it's possible. Don't, don't listen to them if it doesn't line up with the, the very word of God. That's why I encourage you to, to bring your Bibles, you read in that main text, but the cross-references we put up on the screen so you can read, you can see them. Well, look with me in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. And then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands. And if you follow the, the context of that passage, they're worshiping God. And just as the angels worship God, we should be worshipers of God. Now, Ephesians brings in a, a, another angle for us in chapter 6, verse 12. It, it, it talks about the, the armor of God, how we're to put it on. But in verse 12, it says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, notice, and against spiritual forces and wickedness in heavenly places. He's, he's describing this spiritual warfare. It, it, the enemy is not our wives or husbands. It's not the president. It, it's not a, a senator. There's a spiritual battle going on in this world, and this is referring to the ranking of these angels. There is a demonic world, a demonic army that is trying to prevent you from acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and following him. Again, look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Before you have, have even come to the Lord, God has sent his angels out to watch over you, protect you. Often referred to what we call as guardian angels. They're active in this life all around, and, and you may not even recognize them. They may just look like another person. It's interesting, though. In the Scripture, it never describes these angels as females. Always male, always mas masculine. What are these Jewish views of angels? How did they see the angels at that time? Because we have to understand it's being written to Jewish people, Jewish believers, and, and some, as I mentioned, unbelievers. How did they view these angels? Well, to most Jews, they believed that the angels were very important in the Old Testament. That is in the covenant because they, they were the ones that brought it. And we'll see that in a second. They esteemed these creatures the highest beings next to God. In fact, they believed that 
God surrounded himself with these angels. And the, that were these angels were the instruments in, in bringing his word to men. Now, in Genesis 1.26, if you've been in a church a while, you've read the Bible and, and you read this passage, let me read it. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And the church believes this speaks of the Trinity. God is speaking, make, let us make man in our image. God unique separately again from his creation, our image, our, our likeness. Angels are not like God. They're not created in the image, only in that sense that they, they, had, they were created in likeness of holiness. They needed to be confirmed. And the Jewish, many of the Jewish people believed, again, that, that he's speaking here. God is speaking because God is only one, when the church sees God as one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit manifest in three persons. But they, they believed that this was angels. God speaking to these angels. Make, let's, let's make man. Like they had something to do with this creation in our image. Making, again, angels on almost the same level as, as God. Now, many believed acted upon this and believing that this was God's senate or his counsel. And he did nothing without speaking to this angelic counsel to get the wisdom as, as if God was not all-knowing, all-wise God. And God gives what we need to know in the Bible. Now, it's interesting, when we get to Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained, notice, through angels, by the agency of a, a mediator until the seed, the seed would come, who would be the promise had been made of. Now, here, again, that they're, they're bringing the, the, the good news. Okay. God used them to bring the gospel good news. We know today that there are those that are responding. They look up in creation and, and they realize there must be a, a God that created these things. And they begin to ponder in their mind, begin to ask questions in their mind. And God sends either an angel or sends a missionary and, and gives them greater knowledge so that they can trust and rest and know him. We've seen this among the Islamic communities in the Middle East. No missionaries around, and they, they come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. No place in the world, no one is beyond the grace of God. God will reach them, whether it be through angels or through missionaries. Because we have a God that desires that none would perish that all would come to that saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then we have in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of the prize of delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions, as, as he's seen, inflated without cause in his fleshly mind. See, there were those in the early church that continued to worship angels. 
The scripture is very clear. Every knee will bow, referring to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ. We don't worship anything, anyone in this world other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important to understand. But there were those that did in the early church. So this is one of the reasons he's writing to deal with these problems in the church. Now, Hebrews is one of the epistles. These epistles, we have to understand, while there is instruction in them, we have to understand they were written because of correction. There were problems in the church, just as there's problems in the church today. And God wants to address those problems, the problems in the church, which the church is really the people. And that problem that we have is, is, is really a, a disobedience to God's word. It's to pick and choose what we want to believe and ignore what the scripture says. And this is why he gives us this correction. So again, those early believers, many of them, again, those at least Jewish believers were worshiping angels instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what this is about. Take a moment, look with me at Acts chapter 7, verse 51 and 53. He says, you men who are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit, you are doing just as your fathers did, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you now become. You who have received the law ordained, notice, by angels, yet did not keep it. Notice again, the, the problem is they were stiff-necked. They were uncircumcised in heart and ears. They chose to believe what they wanted to believe. Now, what he's talking about is, again, these angels had announced the righteous one was come. It was talking about the Messiah. It says in verse 53, you've received the law as ordained by angels. So again, this is, they're elevating these angels. Oh, the angels have come to me. God has come to you. They're simply the, the instruments, the vessels as you and I, and we don't worship the instrument, the vessel, the tool, but God. Basically, he's saying they had a hardness of heart. This is why they followed after these things. Well, it's in verse 4 that we see that Jesus is, is greater simply because of his title. Verse 4 says, having become much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. The name speaks of that character of who they are, the identification. And we'll see that as we go through. And then verse 5, it goes on. For to which of the angels did he ever say to you are my son, today I've begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be my son. Now, rarely is there a great emphasis upon uh, the meaning of names as, as it was in the, in the past. Only in the sense of nicknames, which usually no intended connection between a child's personality or hope or a meaning of his name. See, 
a, a nickname is just something not about their their character. It's just something about the way they look. Uh, they might see a kid and they call him Shorty, but he grows up and he's now six foot. Or they call him Tubby because he was Tubby when he was young. Or you know how those names go. But the names that were given at the time of, uh, of uh, again, Christ and prior to that was based upon the character, the hope that they had. Their background, their identification, where they came from and where they're going. Names have meaning. Let me encourage you, if you're a believer today, that God has given you a new name, an eternity, a, a new name of what he's done in you and he will do in you all eternity. Something that you will be proud of. Something that it will say, look at, at what God has done in your life and, and it's going to be this incredible thing. And again, in biblical times, God had often chose specific names that related again to the character, some special aspect about that person's life. And we see those quotations oftentimes talking in the scripture and we can find them in Psalm chapter 2 in Second Samuel which refers again to David the, the greater son, David's greater son that, that's speaking of the Messiah. Now both Christians and angels are collectively called the, the sons of God and the children of God in a, a sense that God created them out of a physical creation but it, in some way though they do reflect him because they were created in his image and likeness and then marred in the way that it may appear that one way that the world may reflect is that they have a free will. They have a mind, a reason, even though they may not use that, may not logically reason. They may just emotionally reason, maybe tossed and turned from every wind of doctrine and not thinking through it of emotions and feelings. It's interesting, though, as we look at the fact that we are children of God and our identification is with God because we've been born again, born again twice, born a physical birth, born spiritually born from above is what John chapter 3 talks about is so important. And Jesus too is born twice. He was born physically and born from the dead. And our identification is with, with him. So again when the scripture again never calls any angel the son of God but only again and Jesus Christ, who is not an angel, it says, Today I begotten thee, my beloved son. See, the angels are not related in the God in the same way as begotten, not born of God, just in creation. I love Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. It's interesting because it begins this way. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? 
Who's established all the ends of the earth and magnifying this person? And he, he ends with these, this question. What is his name or his son's name? And surely you know. What is his name? What is God's name? The scripture is clear. Surely you know. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God that has come in the flesh, suffered the cross to carry the burden of sin, raised on the third day for you and me. He's the one we learn from Colossians that, that spoke this world into existence. He created the heavens here. He is not an angel. He has just simply added humanity to his deity. But we do know his name. He is the Lord. He is Jehovah. He is Yahweh. His son's name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's incarnate son, which was in, anticipated through the, the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek, or the Hebrew, either way. Now, he didn't receive the title son until he was begotten into time. It was prior to this time, prior to the incarnation, he was always mentioned as the eternal God. He was eternal God with God. Now, the term son has only to do with Jesus Christ at his incarnation when, when God became flesh. So it's a simple analogy to say that God the Father and Jesus Christ as the Son help us understand this essential relationship between the first and the second person of, of the Trinity. He writes in a way that, is, that it's, we can comprehend it. Now, eternally, he's God, but only from his incarnation he is called the Son. Now, in verse 8, it says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever and is the scepter of his kingdom. Well, the Son through, the Son is, again, only comes through, again, first, the virgin birth. There's only two basic events in relation with Jesus Christ as, as the Son. First, it's in his virgin birth, and second, it's in his resurrection. Again, as I mentioned, he, he never was the son until he was born in the world and through that virgin birth. And let me read from Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Notice this is the first time he's called the Son of God. It's at this virgin birth explaining it. Piece by piece, verse by verse, you connect all these pieces together. Like one of those pictures when we were young, you would connect the dots and all of a sudden you see the picture and we begin putting these pieces together by pulling these scriptures together. It's in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
So God's laying this, this track record. He's revealing a, a little bit at a time, and he's been revealing to you. He's been revealing to me. You'll either receive it or reject it. Now, sometimes we just don't fully understand. But God will repeat himself, bring us back to those same places again. And sometimes I just have to say, you know what, I just don't get it. I'm not going to push it away. I'm going to leave it until there's further revelation. And here in the scripture, in prayer, in my time with him, he will confirm it. He will bring it to pass. Now, the son, uh, we see, again, is through his resurrection, as mentioned in the Scripture. His sonship came into full blossom in his resurrection. He is the son, not only because he's the virgin birth into humanity, but also because he was begotten again from the dead. This is what I've already kind of mentioned. Just as you and I become sons of God in that fullest sense, not by being born once, but being born twice, your spiritual birth I'm talking about. You had a physical and then you had a spiritual. So Jesus Christ, the Son, in the fullest sense, being born not once but twice. This is the deep truth that Paul's trying to teach when you come to the book of Romans in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Let me show you. Concerning his Son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness and Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice he was declared to be the son of God at the power of the resurrection. Now, it's important to understand he has always been God, but he became the son at that birth and at that resurrection in both events. So he became the son at the birth. He was declared to be the son of in the resurrection. Let me point to Acts 13, verse 33, that God has fulfilled the promise in our children and that he raised up Jesus, also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The event finally has occurred. It was something that was planned, but now we understand this is the son, this is what he meant. This is not just a human Alone, he is fully God and fully man. While the angels have this unique purpose in God's creation, and Christ does too, he's come into this world to seek and save the lost. Christ, though, is God. He is the Son of God and has a more excellent name. And the writers of Hebrews argue this from the Old Testament scripture now. Remember, he's speaking to Jews, so what is he going to do? He's going to go back and he's going to show you the scripture. Well, this is what I do. I, I bring the Old Testament to you. I bring the New Testament to you to show you it's one continuous story, one continuous message, and it's important to understand he is God and he is the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. This is essential of the faith. Now, again, in verse 6, we see he's greater because he's worshipped. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. They're angels of God. They're commanded to worship. Only God is worthy of worship. See, Jesus Christ is not only greater than the angels, as the firstborn, he is worshipped. And because the angels worship him, 
he therefore must be greater than they are. Now I want to turn, and you'll see it on the screen here, to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to focus on verse 15 just for a moment and pick up the same thought. Now it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now what I'm going to show you here is he's the the chief one. In fact, in both Hebrews 1, verse 5, and Colossians 1, 15, Christ is called this firstborn. But it's, it's sad because many sects, cults, use this as a, a proof text to show that Jesus is simply a, a created being. They, they say, look, he's the firstborn. You, you see? He's just like the rest of us. He's not. He is God in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. And he's died upon the cross for you and me. Now it's important to understand that that word firstborn is, is not speaking anything in, in relation to time. No, the word is protokos. It, it, it speaks of a, a title, a meaning, the, the chief one as I, I use that phrase. Now the concept was associated with the firstborn because it was the oldest son that usually was the heir to the father's entire estate. One of the examples of that you find in Genesis 49.3. Reuben, you are the firstborn. My, my might, the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And there's what we call this firstborn rights. Well, the first son to be born was, was not always the firstborn. Again, it's not speaking just about time in that event. When we think about the, the case with Esau, for instance, he was older than Jacob, but Jacob was the firstborn. He was the prototokos. See, Jesus Christ was the firstborn. And the focus here is, is not upon Christ's birth, but his sovereignty, his, his power, his, his right. In fact, you and I, are his inheritance. Now, let me show you in Colossians 1.18. It says, He is also the head of the body and the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so he himself will come to have first place in everything. So uh, that, that is speaking of that preeminence. This is his, his sovereignty over all these things. What's interesting is in verse 6, Focus on that word again, when he again brings the firstborn in the world. And then he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Now what's interesting about it, that the word for world there, the, the common word would be cosmos, which we think of universe, but it's not using that particular word here. No, it's using the word that means the inhabited earth. See, Christ the firstborn in the earth. No, it's not saying that. Christ was not the firstborn in the earth. The firstborn is the chief one, the most honored one. He came, again, as that firstborn into an already inhabited earth where millions had been born before him. In fact, when you look at verse 6, and it uses that word again, refers to God bringing his firstborn into the world another time or a second time when when is this that's always the question when's it going to 
to happen. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12 gives us a glimpse of that. It was revealed to them that when they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which they have now announced to you through those who had preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. These things which angels long to look at. Now what is it, first of all, we're, we're going to look at? And that is that he is going to be worshipped. And in Revelation 5, and I'm going to just lift out a little bit, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. When is this? Well, first of all, in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are scenes of heaven. Christ is in heaven. He's there worshipped. Worshipped by the church. He's, he's worshipped by these angels. But it, it's also speaking the fact that he is coming again because it's in chapter 5 that it's a scroll is, is given that he's the only one worthy to open. It's the title deed to the earth. And one seal is undone at a time. These are speaking of the times and the tribulation that he is, he's coming. He's coming in his full glory as the sun, as the prototokos, the firstborn over this earth. The angels will see him, and when they see him as the king of kings, the lord of lords, they will worship him. Every knee will bow at one point. He's greater because of his really superior nature. In verse 7, and the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Jesus is also superior to the angels because of his nature. He is God. See, the Greek word that for makes reminds us that he is the creator. And he created the heaven and the earth. He created the, the angels. Everything that was created was created by him and for him. Because he created the angels, he is superior to them. They're his servants and, in fact, his winds and his flames of fire. Moving on to verse 8, that first part of verse 8, it says, but the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. See, the Father's claim is really going to be that Jesus is deity. He's the eternal one. Here's the most amazing and important statement, I think, in the Scripture in many ways. Jesus is God eternal. Those who say Jesus was, well, he was just a, a man, or he, he was just one of many angels, or one of the many prophets, sadly is, is bringing upon themselves an anathema, a curse, a curse from the eternal God, because they choose to reject the truth of who he is. See, this verse here is the clearest, most powerful, emphatic, irrefutable proof that the deity of of Christ in the Bible. It's from the Father himself. Well, Jesus made various claims that he was God in many ways. Let's look at some of those in John 5, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. There, there's not a question in their mind that he claimed to be God. Equal with God is something they could not comprehend because God is one. 
They didn't understand that there was God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit. Well, many Jews would come to that knowledge, would understand. And Jesus would make further claims in John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Perfect harmony, perfect unity. They're, they're equal, co-equal. And then in John 10, 33, notice what it says in the Jews' answer. For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. There's not a question at this point that Jesus is claiming to be God, God in the, in the flesh. Every person has to make that decision. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus said to Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we see them not only a Again, Jesus' claim, but we see the claim, really, of the apostles. They were eyewitnesses, if you remember, of the Son, O oh God. See, the author's pointing to the deity of Christ, the fact that he is fully God. I love, again, the, the epistle of 1 John, verses 1 and 2. Notice what it says. What was from the beginning. Now, this beginning is not the beginning of creation here. This is not, again, when Jesus came into the world. This is the beginning of the ministry. When they come to know him, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifested. We've seen and testified and proclaimed to you this eternal life with which the Father was manifested to us. They're, they're declaring we've seen him. We've walked with him in this ministry three and a half years. We've heard him. We've seen him. We've touched him. They've watched him. They saw them weep over Jerusalem, weep over Lazarus. They saw him in, in every, every type of uh, situation. And they declared that he is God. He's not a phantom. He's not a ghost. He was God in the flesh. He was the real thing when you saw him. I love Hebrews 1.8. And continue reading, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and your righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. See, first of all, Jesus Christ has this eternal throne, which he rules an eternity as God and king. He is the eternal king in an eternal kingdom, an eternal scepter of righteousness. One day, he will rule and reign in his eternal kingdom, and you and I will be there as believers. And he will have this eternal scepter. And it's a scepter of righteousness. In verse 9, that's what it's talking about. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. See, this verse is revealing again Jesus' actions and his motives. He not only acted in righteousness, he loved righteousness. He loved what was right and hated what was unjust, what was unholy. 
Now, 1 John, again, chapter 1, verse 5, notice what it says. This is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Light speaks of that illumination. It speaks of purity. Darkness speaks of sin and evil. And he is pure and he's holy and he's righteous. He he was anointed as, as as a prophet, as a priest and a king. No man before him was ever anointed as a prophet, priest, and king. Only Christ. He was the righteous prophet, priest, and king. Well, there were some that again anointed as kings and some as prophets and priests, but only all of those were combined in Christ Jesus. He's greater simply because of his existence. Look with me in verse 10 through 12. And you, O Lord... In the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. He's the creator. The heavens are your works of your hands, and they will perish, but you will remain. They will all become old like a garment, like a mantle, and you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your your years will not come to an end. Now, what he's quoting here is Psalm 102, probably verses 25 and 27. It's celebrating the Son as both, the, again, the, the creator, the one who, who brings the, the created order to an end. It's going to wear out like old clothing. He gives the example. And the Son will discard this world at some point. He'll create a, a new heaven and a new earth. But Christ, he lives forever. 2 Peter 3.10 says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away and roar, the elements be destroyed with intense heat in the earth, and its works will be burned up. This earth one day will go up in smoke, but God will create a new heaven and earth, one without any sin, or sinners in it. Now, verse 13, look with me. But which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Well, Christ is greater because his superior destiny. He will sit at the right hand of the Father. In fact, he is sitting there now at the right hand of the Father, continually interceding for you and me. Now, the quotation comes from, again, Psalm 110, verse 1. It climaxes the the teaching, this full superiority of Christ to the angels. Note the, the destiny of Christ compared to that of the angels. They'll only serve him all other days. No angel has ever been promised to sit at the right hand of, of God. Only the Son in this case. See, Christ is the Son of God. He's superior to angels in each and every way. His superiorities, they're described in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. He's the mediator of a new covenant, a covenant better than the old. See, these are important truths. They're doctrinal, yes, but they're important, I think, 
let me read a little bit from next week's text, and I'll show you why. For this reason, we must pay close attention to what we've heard, so we do not drift away from it. For if it were spoken through angels and proved unalterable, every transgression disobedience received is a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. See, he's writing this because they're drifting. It's important that we know these truths, know who Jesus Christ is, because this is really part of eternal life is knowing God, knowing that he said he's coming for you again, knowing that when you close your eyes in this world, you will be in his presence, and his presence is fullness of joy. God loves you with an everlasting love. And he's revealing himself in this book. He's revealing himself to the people then who were on the, on the cusp of, of apostasy, falling away. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? God's created these angels not only to serve him, to worship him, but to serve you, to protect you and guide you and lead you. And, and you may not even know there's an angel that has come into your life to give you a word of comfort when you need it, to give you the gospel message. This is God's love reaching out through these angels to say, I love you. Would you believe and trust in me? that I am God? Would you confess my name, believe in your heart, and trust me that I'm going to forgive you of your sins and that I'm coming back again soon? He says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He's talking about the burden of sin upon you. Learn from me who are gentle and meek 